You know, it's fascinating to me when I, when I look at some of the, my life. And I ended up my sermon last week telling you that I learned to compensate for my tremors. And, uh, and, and the doctor kept saying, do not compensate, do not compensate. And I realized how much compensation not only do I do with my tremors, but I do with life. If you notice that, it's really fascinating to me because a lot of times that I compensate with my tremors or hide them because I want to fit in. I don't want to be noticed. And the thing is, I don't want to be judged. And I don't think any of us like enjoy being judged or want to be judged. So what we do is we end up conforming and kind of just going with the flow so we not recognize. So Kevin just keeps his hands in his pockets. It's interesting when there's been a handful of times that I've been pulled over by the police. And it's very interesting because it's always a 40-minute thing with them, with me. Because once they come to the door, you, you come to the door, you know, my brother was, a, he's a retired police officer. He goes, 10 and 2, all the windows down. 10 and 2, all the windows down. <laughs> but they always go and say, driver's license, insurance. And I'm pulling out, and this is what, inevitable I hear, why are you so nervous, boy? And I go, oh, I'm not, I have essential tremors. Can you step out of the car, please? Do you, do you mind if my officer does looks in the car? I go, no, because they think I'm on drugs now. And so they put that flashlight in my eyes to see if I'm on drugs. There's nothing in my pupil, or as you think, nothing in my head. <laughs> and so they always think it's a mental disorder or something like that. They're trying to figure you out. They're making a judgment call. And so what happens is none of us like this. In fact, it's interesting. Very early in our lives, we are given the message by the world that who we really are is unacceptable in some way or another. Therefore, we begin to hide the true self, and to varying extents, we build a false self which is thought to be acceptable and lovable to others. It's interesting because the compensation, judgment forces the true me and the true you into hiding. What we do is sometimes when we come to church, when we get dressed for church, obviously I dress myself, you dress yourself, right? But sometimes what we end up doing is we put on this emotional armor and we kind of put it on and go like this and click it because we don't, we're afraid to be ourselves. And we learn to conform even in the patterns of the church, how to talk, how to act, what to do. And so therefore it's fascinating to me because we think to move beyond this, a real person often is hiding under layers of layers of protective armor. <laughs> it's interesting to me, you would think the church would be less judgmental because sometimes when we go to church, we get judged a lot. And, and it doesn't matter what church it is, different churches we go to, they, they say, well, this is important to us, this is important to us, this is important to us. And we're not sure which is what we're going to land on, so we kind of just put the armor on, keep quiet, don't ask any questions, and we get out of here. Just as long as they're not playing with snakes, we're fine. And we look at it. Judgment is not the magical solution to change people. 
In fact, I've noticed one thing that's really interesting. I've come to realize the only thing which truly changes people and frees them to be the true person God made them to be is God's grace. Not judging, but God's grace. That's why our church says no judgment, only love. Now, I, I've got some pushback on some very conservative, and, I, and let me emphasize very conservative Christians of that sign. No judgment, only love. And a lot of people say, well, how do you speak the truth in somebody's life? How do you hold somebody accountable without judging? Well, the Bible says you speak the truth in what? Love, right? And so there's two instances this week that I had to speak the strong truth in people's lives. But I did it in love. And both of those times they received it. And there's times that I have, I've had to stand up and say, you know what, this is toxic. These two people are toxic in our church and they're not wanting to change. And I had to literally tell them, you're not welcome here anymore. And so it's not like you're, you're not speaking the truth, but you're speaking in love. In fact, if you look, this is where I'm different. If we are going to confront somebody with the truth about themselves, we have to tell them the whole truth beginning with the fact that they are God's beloved children, child in whom God is well pleased. Once people begin to eternalize this truth, they begin to have a desire to be what is the most true about themselves and the false compensating armor behaviors begin to drop, drop away because those ways of coping are no longer needed. It's really interesting. We're kind of going through the book of Jonah. And Jonah is interesting because God invited Jonah to see the world, to see the Ninevites as God sees it. God is challenging Jonah, look through my filters. Don't look through your filters. Look what I see and how I see it. Jonah is invited to see the world not through the lens of judgment, but through the lens of God's love. Can you imagine if we live a week, let's say a week, without judgment, but looking through each other through the lens of love. Man, that would be hard, but it would be life-changing for us. As I mentioned last week, we do not know how Jonah responded because it was open-ended, the book of Jonah. It's very interesting because that invitation is, how are we going to see the world? How are we going to see the Ninevites in our lives? How are we going to see the people that drive us nuts? How are we going to see them? In fact, how we, if you take the Grace Trek, this is one of the questions in the Grace Trek book. It's how will you finish your Grace Trek? Will you respond to God's invitation to see the world through the eyes and love and grace? Or will you continue to hold on to seeing through your ego-based judgment? <laughs> it's fascinating to me. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, if you listen to the Apostle Paul, because his prayer is, let me see through the eyes of grace. Let me see through the eyes of grace, not through the eyes of judgment. And if anyone could judge, it was Paul. Formerly, he was a Pharisee. He was a perfect Pharisee, if you think about it. And they were known for judging. But his prayer was this. So then, from the point on, we won't recognize people by their human standards, how we judge. 
even though we used to know Christ by human standards, that isn't how we know him now. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of a new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. That is restoration in people's lives. The New Testament is fascinating because when, before I went into ministry, I don't know, have you ever been frustrated with Christians? But you're a Christian? You're going to make me look bad, you know? When I see these stupid, um, I, should, I shouldn't say this, but these little uh, YouTube redneck things, you know, my people love destroying themselves, sitting on airbags, sitting on things, and I'm going, man, you're embarrassing me. And so as Christians, sometimes you go, don't, don't claim to be a Christian. But it's interesting because Paul never claimed to be a Christian. He never said, I'm a Christian. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, New Testament, the word Christian is only used three times. But Paul uses another analogy about himself, and he uses it 164 times. Paul uses the term in Christ 164 times. It's interesting how a Christian or in Christ, in Christ is a deeper meaning. Because it says to be in Christ means to, means to, to be means, wait, to be in Christ means to be means to be organically connected to Christ like a branch is to a tree or a limb to, is to a body. When we put our trust in Christ and follow him, Paul would expect that we would be connected to Christ in such a way that we take his characteristics, including the way we see the world. Can you imagine that I feel what Christ feels? That I get joy of what, what brings Christ joy? That we're so interconnected that there's no absence of his presence in my life because I feel him, even the hard emotions, especially justice or injustice. That's why Paul excitedly says in verse 17 is to look. Paul is saying to open your new eyes and look at the world the way Christ does. When you do that, you won't be looking at the world in the old judgmental, ego-based way, but you will see the world through the eyes of Christ, love and grace. You will see the world the way it really is, no longer distorted by our misjudgments. It will be a whole new world in which Paul calls a new creation. You know, I always joke, you know, when I go for my walks sometimes, you know, when somebody comes walking by you, you have two choices. You can try to get eye contact or no eye contact. And usually the other person, I'm trying to get eye contact, but they look down or they're looking this way. And I go, good morning. Dead silent. You notice that? And you want to go. Hey, then you start acting like a psycho man. They go, reinforce. This is why I didn't say hi to you, because you're crazy. And so now I'm learning to say a quick little prayer. Bless them. Bless them. They're so focused right now that they may be going through difficult times. They may be going through hard times. Now, I'm not saying go to the mall and just say, hi, hi, hi. You know, that's too much. But when you, when you say... Start talking to people and saying hi. 1 Corinthians 13 is really fascinating to me because the latter part of uh, uh, verse 13 is I always do it on weddings. 
And it's really not a wedding, wedding scripture to read. It's about life scripture to read. In fact, it's interesting because this is how you see, see through the eyes of grace or through the eyes of judgment. The scripture is really prevalent, and Paul is very good at this. The first section of 1 Corinthians 13 shows how our good deeds can often be motivated out of ego. And the false self is not from Christ's love. So follow me on the scripture here. And this is what Paul writes. What if I could speak all languages of humans and of angels? But if I did not love others, I would be nothing more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. What if I prophesy and understand all secrets and all knowledge? And what if I had faith that moved mountains? I would be nothing unless I loved others. What if I gave away all that I owned? and let myself be burned alive, I would gain nothing unless I love others. Now, I'm, I'm going to practice French here. You probably, because I want to sound pretty intelligent, and you've probably never heard this. It's called quid pro quo. <laughs> That's my French. You like that? Quid pro quo. I can actually pronounce it. Now, I know many of you don't know what quid pro quo means, but what it is, is I'll give you something you want if you give me something I want in return. That's what quid pro quo means in French. Is it French? It's French. Ooh. Ooh, you have no problems correcting me. I'm just going to tell you, when I start speaking in your life and you go, don't correct me. Oh, I'm going to correct you now. And I'm going to do it in front of people. Maybe I don't know what quid pro quo is, but I know the meaning of it. The ego loves to play that game. The ego loves to play that game. And it's very interesting. It's not just in the political realm. We all play this game, quid pro quo. We all do it. In fact, Paul is well aware of, of that religious, religious good works are often more motivated by the ego than by godly love. It is a quid pro quo arrangement in which the eagle gains validation by the person doing something sacrificially. That is not love. According to Paul, there is nothing to be gained by being a religious show-off because only love has the power to do any sustainable good in this world. So you can do good without love. You ain't doing jack. You need love. That's what it's talking about. The next section describes what godly love is and isn't. Paul gives characteristics of what comes from the false self and what comes from, the, from love. So follow me, okay? If you want to be motivated by love. Love is kind. Love is patient. It's never jealous, boasted, proud, or rude. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. Oh, good night. You know what? I don't, I don't love anybody right now, okay? Forget, you know how difficult it is to have a sign that says only love, and this is how you describe love? I don't understand how my conservative friends think this is easy, to love. That's a high mark, only love. 
Love is kind and patient, never jealous, boastful, proud, rude. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. It does not keep record of wrong. I'm sorry. Obviously, I keep record of wrong. You can tell that. That others do. Love rejoices in the truth, but not in evil. Love is always supportive, loyal, hopeful, and trusting. Love never fails. Who would not want to be part of a church that if they practice that? Who would stop pretending to be something else when if they come into the church and go, I'm safe here. I'm completely safe. And I can take this emotional armor off because it takes so much energy to wear it. Do you see the difference between the ego and in Christ? Ego produces jealousy, boasting, pride, rudeness, selfishness, centeredness, hot-headedness, old grudges. That's what the ego does. But true love doesn't. But on the other hand, someone in Christ that has experienced Christ in the fullness of his glory in their life, to understand the redemptiveness, the restoration in their life, to be restored in order to restore, and knowing that the love of God has filled them to be healed from their emotional brokenness and to help others heal from their emotional brokenness with the love of Christ restored in order to restore. Love sees what is the most true about a person and does not give up until that person rejects what is false and chooses the ultimate truth, the ultimate truth of love. Scripture gives me hope. If love never fails, think about this. If the Bible says love never fails. And so when we're talking about restoration, it's through the love of God. So therefore, if love never fails, according to Scripture, then I can be fully restored to what Christ has called me to be. Not perfected, but fully restored. It's amazing if you think about it. Through the power of love. The next section describes how the reality of God's love is clouded by a currently limited awareness. And this is interesting. Everyone who prophesies will stop. Unknown languages will no longer be spoken. All that we know will be forgotten. We don't know everything and, and uh, our prophecies are not complete. But what is perfect will someday appear. And what isn't perfect will then disappear. When we are children, we thought and reasoned as children do. But when we grew up, we quit our childish ways. Now, all of us can see of God is like in a cloudy picture in a mirror. Later, we will see his face to face. We don't know everything, but then we will, just as God completely understands us. I think this section is meant to keep us humble. See, there's a big difference between living in faith and living in certainty. We are called to live by faith. We're not called to live by certainty. Certainty is produces the ego. Faith allows us to be humble. Do you see the difference? And even in my walk with the Lord, when I pray, this week, I prayed for somebody. They called me and said, he, he's going to die today. So I went, did the last rites, prayed, said, very draining on me. 
And I pray that the Lord will bring, his, bring him home, that he'll have the new body. You know, that dude, he snapped out of it and went out of intensive care and went back and was getting healed. I was going, I can't even pray somebody into heaven, you know, because sometimes it's by faith. Everyone said this person is going to die, but he recovered. And I, I thank goodness God doesn't answer certain prayers, right? <laughs> I mean, this is what happens to me on a weekly basis. So when I'm talking about faith versus certainty, that I got to pray and trust God that he knows what he's doing in this situation. And he, he does it. And so judgment plays the know-it-all game. It sees only a small part of the picture, the part it wants to see, and judges it to be the whole thing. That's what Paul says in another scripture. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. Have you ever been around a know-it-all? <laughs> okay? It drives you nuts. It puffs up. You don't... You can talk about anything. But man, when I'm with somebody that loves me, it builds me up. When I love that person, it builds me up. And so we use carefully, carefully selected knowledge to be very judgmental at times. And so this is what I've noticed. That armor that we wear, you know what the ingredients is? It's arrogance and pride. That's what builds that armor around us, arrogance and pride. See, arrogance and pride are going to take us further into our false self. That all of a sudden, if I'm a know-it-all, then I'm better than you and stuff like that, but deep down, I'm as empty as all get out because nobody knows. I did premarital counseling yesterday to a couple that's not in this church, and I told, told the gentleman, you have not let her know who you are. You're, you have a false image of yourself. And you're pretending to be something else. They want to get married in January. I told them, I'm not doing the wedding. I'm not doing the wedding. Because you guys don't know each other. You have this armor of hurt from past relationships that you're not living authentic lives. And, and I, want to, I want to see you heal. I don't want to see this broken again. I don't want to see anyone go through a divorce again. And they embraced it. And they moved their wedding back till next year. Because their healing needs to take place through love. It needs to take place. And so Paul reminds us that, that to remain in love is to remain humble. Nobody has a has a perfectly clear picture of God. Our normal human way of seeing and all of our knowledge only adds up to seeing a reflection in a cloudy mirror. In order to see the, the way God sees, it requires a different type of seeing. And this is why Paul ends this, ends this this way. Instead of relying on our normal way of seeing, we must rely on three godly virtues instead. So, these are through the eyes, the filters of God, how we see things. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. For now on, there is faith, hope, and love. But the, out of these three, the greatest is love. Can you imagine that I live life with faith? That I live life with hope? 
you can say, I'm hopeless. If everything, there's where hope grows. Because hope is hope. And so if you have these virtues, faith, hope, and love, do you see what Paul's saying here? We must stop relying on our natural eyes of judgment and learn to see by faith. We must begin to trust that what God says is true about me and you in this world and what is ultimately true. And as we put our trust in God's love, we gain true hope that love ultimately wins. Therefore, we learn to live by faith, hope, and God's love and not judgment. Let's go back to the story of Jonah. <laughs> the story ends in an interesting way. He's sitting in the desert by himself, and he's ticked off. The last written words of what Jonah said in the book of Jonah was this. Just let me die. That was his words to God. Just let me die. We don't know how it ends. We have no idea if the hot sun and he just fell asleep and just withered and died. We have no idea that all of a sudden he got out of his head and saw to the faith, hope, and love and went back and saw purpose in his lives and saw the reality of what God sees rather than what he sees. That he, maybe he accepted God's final word. What is God's final word? Love. He did not want to love. Not those Ninevites. He preferred judgment. And it's interesting to me that when we have so much anger and bitterness, I can't enjoy the day. Can you? I mean, think about it. If I'm bitter and I'm hating somebody and I'm playing over and over, and trust me, I can do that. Keep no records are wrong. <laughs> they play it over and over. It sucks the life out of me that day. So this is where it's important. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself. If Jonah didn't die in the heat, he would have eventually returned home. Most likely been a changed man. The Jonah we know from the story would have been left behind in the desert. Instead of Nineveh being destroyed, the false Jonah would have been destroyed. And the real Jonah would have returned home with a different awareness and message. His new message would have been, don't be afraid. There is no us and them, only all of us. We're all Ninevites, and Ninevites are us. We are all in God's love. Can you imagine, even in our culture that we live in, today, how divisive we live today in our country, how relevant the Word of God is. How relevant the Word of God is. That's a spiritual journey of grace is about. As a worship team comes forward, I just want to share with you and read one thing and share with you a closing uh, remarks. It says, God pulls us out of the ordinary world of earning our worth. God pulls us out of the ordinary world of judgment in order to restore us back to our true selves. But we are restored to return to our ordinary world with new eyes, which see the world the way Christ sees. We are giving new eyesight to envision a restored world 
we are returned to do the work of love and restoration in this world. And so the song that the worship team is going to sing and talking about revisioning things. Jennifer and I, the last time we went to Southern Sudan, it was an eye-opening experience. And it was probably the most time that we were filled with more joy than ever before in our lives. When we were walking to church with dozens of children walking with us. They were holding our stuff and stuff like holding our stuff and running with us. And you know my greatest pain is not having children of my own, but seeing all these beautiful children who do not have parents. And our prayer was, let us see what you see. And man, it is a colorful, beautiful world that we live in. If we just see through faith, hope, and love. On the night before meeting with death, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup he gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. God, we ask this morning, we come to you asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us who are gathered here and on these gifts that as we break this bread and we drink of this cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for this world, redeemed by his blood until Christ returns in final victory and we feast at your table forever. Through Christ, with Christ, and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Together we say. Amen. I made breakfast for my kids uh, yesterday, as I always do, most Saturdays, if not all. It's one of the things that gives me life to be able to cook for people, um, especially breakfast. Our families, especially the kids, man, these kids love breakfast. So I made... Uh, turkey breakfast patties. Lexi didn't like them. She didn't care for them. Kai's like, mm, this is good. What is in them? What's in them? Salt, pepper, sage, and my secret ingredient. And I told Kai, this is the secret. You cannot tell anybody. Wait, I'm telling you. 
maple syrup. You put a little maple syrup in that ground turkey, make little patties, and you've got some delicious breakfast patties. Now, why am I telling you this? Kai asked, what's in them? What's in you? We just heard a, a sermon, a message. We've been singing about, they will know they are Christians because of our what? What's in you? How does it get there? Because you can't manufacture it. We can fake it. We can pretend. We've been told it's a feeling. So when we feel it, yeah, I love you. And I also love tacos. You see? We just throw it around. It's this, it's this thing we just... But Christ is calling us to something deeper. He's saying it has to be in you. It has to be one of your ingredients. In fact, it's the secret ingredient. And we, we sit here around this table. We come to this table as those disciples did, celebrating Passover that night. And Jesus is saying, guys, I'm doing it to the bread. I'm putting this mystery here. The infinite, the godly, the divine, the thing that is not capturable, I'm putting it in something so common. Simple bread. Everybody eats bread. Well, unless you're, you know, that, that spectrum of dieting. You don't eat carbs. It's so common. I'm putting this mystery, I'm putting the divine in something so simple so that you know I'm doing it to you. So that you would know eating after eating each time that we gather, if he does it to the bread, he's doing it to us. And that is the mystery of communion. It's the secret ingredient. He loves you. And that's why we are just like the Ninevites. As awful as they were, my goodness, they were loved. And that's something Jonah just could not comprehend. How can you love them if you're our God? You can't contain this. His love never fails because it goes out and it impacts everything and everybody. And so we take and we participate in this sacred moment because what we're saying is the infinite, the divine, somehow, some way, it's captured. It's in these elements. And if we believe that, if we say that, and it must be true that it's in us. Amen? And so all are welcomed to this space, to this gathering, to this table. There's nothing you can do or should do to earn a seat around this table. When you place your trust in the Christ for the forgiveness of sins, of brokenness, when you want healing, when you desire that wholeness, that restoration, if you desire and you seek to live in love and in peace with everyone, to know more of Christ, to walk in his ways, then we invite you.
Come, sit, recline, eat. If you wish to remain seated, that's okay. No judgment, right? Just love. These are the gifts of God for us, the people of God. Come now and take them in remembrance, in knowing without a doubt that Christ has died for you. And feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving.